This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Uh, we're going to have today a conversation that started really by our first, um, our future forest uh, short film, where we talked, we started a conversation where we talked about uh, how one might use biotechnology to save uh, forests from the brink of extinction, like, for example, uh, the American chestnut, but we also explore whether new technologies like the CRISPR-Cas genome editing tool technology can be used to make forests more resilient to climate change and other stressors. As many great films, we answer some questions, but we also generated many more. And we are here today to continue our conversation and to try to answer some of those questions. So. First of all, I want to welcome our panel, and I want to start with Dr. Jack Wang, who is an assistant professor at North Carolina State University, and he was just selected as an university faculty scholar. So congratulations to you, Jack. Uh, at NC State, he uses CRISPR-Cas technology in forest trees and studies their response to stressors, growth, and wood formation. We also have Dr. Doria Gordon, who is a lead senior scientist at the Environmental Defense Fund, where she works to build more resilient landscapes. We also have Jason DeVorn, who is a professor of science policy and in the Department of Forestry and Environmental Resources at NC State University. He is a social scientist and focuses on emerging biotechnologies. And he's especially interested in how we govern those biotechnologies and how we engage stakeholders in this process. And last but not least, we have Dr. Sofia Valenzuela, who is joining us today from Concepcion, Chile. Thank you so much for joining us today. And she works in the field of forest genomic at the University of Concepcion. In her research, she seeks to understand how trees can flourish in the face of numerous uh, pathogens and stressors. So thank you everybody for be, to be here and for being not only our speakers for the uh, but also the panelists uh, of this conversation. So I want to start first um, to continue in a conversation or a topic that was started by the second film, uh, Saving the American Chestnut, a short story, where we introduced these three different methods that could be potentially used uh, to uh, make trees more resilient against pests and pathogens. The first method was um, crossbreeding. The second was the generation of a genetically engineered organism or a GMO by the introduction of specific gene that is foreign to that particular tree species. And the third method was the possibility of using CRISPR-Cas genome editing tools. And I would like to continue the conversation, maybe briefly introduce these different methods, but think about the differences between the methods and the pros and cons of using these when we're thinking about building resilient uh, forest trees. And anybody can take on um, the conversation from here. Maybe Jack, you can start with the crossbreeding. Great. So um, I was really hoping for someone else to start, but no, this is fine. All right. So um, the pros and cons between crossbreeding conventional first gen GMOs versus CRISPR. I mean, these are um, completely different techniques. Um, of course, um, crossbreeding is the one that's been used the most um, for hundreds of years. Um, we individuals selected from um, natural populations that contain specific traits of interest are then crossed, and then progenies from those crosses are then screened um, for um, variants that contain um, the, the traits of interest, and they repeat and continue the process. Uh, the pro is, of course, is being de-risks. So it's been done for hundreds of years. We know how it works. We know what the likely outcomes are. And that um, 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 it is, um, we know that it's safe and we know it's, it's, it, it works and 
and and so forth and so on. Now the the cons of uh, crossbreeding is that um, you do need it does take time um, to do, and for species such as forest trees, it becomes particularly problematic because of the very long generation of trees that can um, take um, 15 to up to upwards of 30 years to reach uh, maturity that would allow you to do breeding. So uh, when you think about um, um, trees like the American chestnut or other coniferous species, um, breeding for genetic improvement um, to increase uh, uh, resilience to present pathogens is something that is uh, um, very challenging and could potentially take uh, um, at least decades to hundreds of years to be able to generate ones that contain um, or are sufficient for your target diseases. And the other uh, challenge with conventional breeding is that it is inherently limited by the availability of natural uh, um, genetic variation. So you need to be able to find your traits of interest in natural populations to be able to breed that into your um, um, genetics uh, of, of particular individuals. So if you cannot find in, for example, the American chestnut, if you cannot find a individual or individuals that naturally evolved um, or have uh, resistance to uh, the chestnut blight, you won't be able to breed it into your population. So that is, again, a, a challenge with conventional breeding. So I'll stop here, otherwise I'll blab around for the whole hour. And then I'll, I'll just uh, I'll chime in. Thank you. Can somebody then explain the uses of or degeneration of a genetically modified organism? Sophia, can you okay. take that on? I'll take that one on. Uh, well, in the case of genetic modified organisms, the advantages um, that you can do this in a shorter period of time than in the case of crossbreeding. It is faster if you know the gene of interest. That is, if you know which gene is coding for the trait you want to insert or introduce in the crop, or in this case, tree, uh, that you want to. So if you, and nowadays, since sequencing is very feasible and we have plenty of genomes available, it is easier, I'm not saying that it's easy, but it's easier to find a potential gene of interest that you can use to, for example, obtain a pathogen resistance in trees uh, or traits that are uh, mainly uh, respond to a single or two or three genes. And I guess one of the main problems that we might have in the, for trees and also uh, feasible, or I mean, also the same in the case of crops is that we have many traits that are polygenic. That is that you have multiple genes that respond and it will be very difficult to, for example, you want to say, I want to have a tree that is tolerant to drought being a main issue nowadays, but drought is multiple genes. If, you, if we could find a single gene that could confer tolerance to drought, it will be a lottery. Uh, but we still need to work on that. But uh, I say I would say it's shorter than uh, conventional breeding if you find have the gene of interest you want to introduce. Uh, it has been used since 1980s, so it's a not a new technology. It's already an old technology. We say it's the old hat, right? Nowadays, CRISPR-Cas synthetic biology are the new hats, and not so new anymore. But anyhow, so it's a uh, uh, it has been used for many years in the case of agricultural crops. And it started out with uh, poplar. One of the first cases that was used was poplar, but uh, we do not have any GMO trees. And I will say that's one of the cons is that uh, biosafety issues are not in place to deal with GM trees. We have had only a couple of cases, genetic engineered uh, eucalypts in Brazil that they were approved for commercial uh, used by a, uh, they were produced by Susano, a forest company. However, uh, the trait they used, because as said before, it took quite a long time. They had the trait like 20 years earlier, 
they selected a gene, they introduced this, they did all the biosafety issues. And when it was approved for commercial use, they already had um, better trees obtained by uh, crossbreeding. And that I would say it's only an exception in eucalypts because eucalypts here in the Southern hemisphere, they grow very fast. So rotation time is six, eight or 10 years. So we can have many generations in a very short time. Um, and I would say another uh, cons is that it's not the technique itself, but it's the public perception. And I think that's something we need to work on. And some of we're making this kind of short uh, uh, movies and seminars is helping out to make the people understand how this technology works. And actually, because you do many, many biosafety risk assessments, uh, whenever you have a GM product ready to co be commercialized, it is as safe as any uh, com uh, commercial product obtained by genetic uh, breeding or by crossbreeding. So that's, that's, I would say, the pros and cons. Thank you, Sophia. And uh, Doria, could you maybe uh, bring us home and try to encapsulate uh, what is the, the pros and cons of uh, CRISPR-Cas genome um, editing tools in comparison with the other two that we just discussed? Sure. So the conventional breeding um, or hybridization, if we think about the American chestnut, um, hybridized with the Chinese chestnut, that, that is, as Jack described, that is looking for the traits you want and trying to cross, whether either within or across species, for those traits to emerge in the progeny and takes a long time in order to develop those progeny and have them grow. Um, large enough that you can see whether or not they are resistant. But in the case of the American chestnut, there was the, um, the Chinese chestnut was already resistant to the chestnut blight. So crossbreeding that, hybridizing that with the American chestnut did increase the um, resistance of this new hybrid chestnut to the blight, but also brought a whole lot of other Chinese chestnut genes that we either wanted or didn't want in the, in the new uh, hybrid. When you use when the uh, GMO was used, the gene from wheat to um, essentially detoxify the blight in the tree um, was inserted into the genome of the American chestnut. So you didn't have all those extra genes that came in with the Chinese chestnut. And the resist, disease resistance has been conferred uh, to the American chestnut. And that is the one genotype we have that people are really using, the one suite of genotypes created from this GMO um, construction of inserting the gene from a different species into that species. That's in contrast to CRISPR and the newer types of genetic editing that allow manipulation of the existing genome of the species, the existing DNA of the species to, um, to either delete genes that would increase susceptibility of the American chestnut to the disease or insert genes uh, from other places in the DNA. Uh, so amplify what's existing in the DNA in order to increase resistance to the blight. And I understand, so we have the GMO. That's the one that, that, that we were talking about in the second video. Um, I understand that the scientists are working on sequencing both the American chestnut gene and genome, so all of the DNA in the American chestnut, all the DNA in the Chinese chestnut to look for differences between them that might identify where specifically one could alter and edit that DNA in the American chestnut to make it more like what's in the Chinese chestnut. And the difficulty here, aside from sequencing the genomes of trees, which are very large, is that there are is something like 40 to 30 to 40 million years of separation between the Chinese chestnut as it evolved and the American chestnut as it evolved. So many places in the DNA of those two species that are very different. So finding the actual control on that one trait, which is susceptibility to the canker, the blight, um, will be difficult. And in particular, if it isn't just one place, if it's a combination of genes that are conferring that resistance, that will make it difficult. But that is being worked on, I understand now, by the scientists. And as I quickly learned from our conversations when we started these um, 
this interview for the films uh, two years ago, this is a very complicated story. And uh, there are many, many different layers. And a question that popped up, uh, maybe Jack, you can take this one, is are CRISPR trees in the forest a reality in our lifetime? And what are the challenges holding it back? Um, I mean, I am optimistic uh, for several reasons. Um, so CRISPR is a is a new technology that has um, pretty much changed the way that scientists are are conducting um, genetic engineering. So it offers unique opportunities and and edits um, that no conventional GMO technology offers. And just to be uh, um, um, specific in terms of how it works. So in conventional GMOs, you deliver using either agrobacterium or uh, um, ballistics or particle bombardment, uh, um, um, pieces of DNA um, into the plant genome and it's done in a completely random manner. So um, segments of DNA will be inserted into the genome and it is out of the control scientists where those DNA are inserted. Sometimes they're inserted in the wrong location. That would result in disruptions in the, uh, um, the metabolism of the species and causing a whole host of off-targeted, uh, non-intended consequences. And those, of course, in combination with the foreign DNA that was inserted into the genome of these plants that causes the biological biosafety as well as the, the uh, public concerns that we've um, um, uh, seen to date. CRISPR um, mitigates those concerns by using very precise um, protein bound to a, a what we call a guide RNA. So the protein, um, the cas protein simply function as a molecular scalpel. And then the guide RNA uh, uh, function as the, the sort of the fine function inside of the Microsoft Word. So essentially how it works is it goes into the genome, finds a very precise location we want to cut, and then the Cas protein makes a single double-stranded cut of the target gene. And then that gene is then repaired by the native uh, cellular process uh, called non-homologous enjoining. In that process, it edits the target gene. And, and so the, whole, the, the actual edit is made by the plant cell itself and not by an, any other means. So essentially what you end up with is a plant that is genetically indistinguishable. And this is very important, it's genetically indistinguishable from any natural genetic variation. So trees or plants or any organisms edited by CRISPR, if you look hard enough, you can find the same um, type of edits in nature. But of course, in forests, we have to screen um, hundreds of thousands of hectares, and you may not have this. It's unfeasible. But using CRISPR, you can you can do it very precisely, very accurately, with uh, very limited to no off-target unintended effects. And as such, um, um, as you as the the iBiology video rightfully mentioned, um, if it cannot be distinguished from something that can be achieved. Uh, um, by conventional uh, breeding or found in nature, then, you know, why treat it differently? So I am very optimistic. And as the USCS Secure recently issued, uh, um, organisms edited using CRISPR um, can have an easier or, or safer regulatory uh, path towards its, its intended deployment. So I'll stop there. I'm sure uh, um, Jason's probably much more authoritative on this subject um so so i think yeah, yeah jason will be a, a great person to 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 expand on this yeah i just i think i'd like to make two points um one is that i think you know each of these kinds of technologies has uncertainty and risk so when we do crossbreeding we don't know exactly what genes are coming from each species we don't know exactly how those traits are going to behave in the environment you know, a, a hybrid organism could not behave well in the environment. It could, it could have, you know, ecological impacts. It could not be, it could not survive very long. There's all sorts of uncertainties that come along with crossbreeding. 
And our experience with it means that we're comfortable with some of those uncertainties, but they still exist. And with genetic engineering, there's also uncertainties. I mean, as Jack described, we don't know exactly where upon insertion, where the, the new genetic sequence is going to land or how many copies. We can look at that through sequencing and, and try to, to make sure that we're getting you know, the right number of copies. We can look at insertion points, we can test it, but there are some uncertainties about how this organism with a new genetic sequence is going to behave in an ecological environment. And the same is true with CRISPR. So there is more, more certainty about where the edit is happening, but there's, there, there remain uncertainties about how that edit is going to have an impact on the organism over time and in complex environments. That uncertainty doesn't go away. Um, so there, there are things that we can do, of course, um, in the scientific community to give us more confidence that the kinds of uncertainties that could arise are not gonna be problematic, but we never completely eliminate those uncertainties. And really, if you think about our regulatory system, it's designed to try to balance um, those risks with the kinds of benefits that we would have by making new types of organisms through crossbreeding or genetic engineering or gene editing. Um, the other point I just wanna make um, is you know, on, on Jack's point about um, whether like a CRISPR edited organism is indistinguishable from um, something that would occur naturally. Um, you know, in some ways that's true. Um, in other ways, if it were completely true, then we wouldn't bother by doing it. If this thing was happening in nature all the time, then you know, we wouldn't need to do this. But, but the other interesting part um, in terms of our regulatory system and in terms of, of public concerns around these technologies is if it is indistinguishable, that means that we can't track it or monitor it in the same way. So with genetic engineering, there have been studies to, to track where um, different genetic insertions have, have landed in different types of crops or wild relatives or things like that. And that's often caused controversy around genes kind of being out of place. Um, and if we think about CRISPR edits, if they aren't distinguishable, in some ways that, that should give us some reassurance that it's somehow more natural than genetic engineering, but it also raises the question, how will we even monitor those organisms when they're released into open environments if we can't track them? So there's sort of a double-sided coin there in terms of the way that CRISPR works. And aside from uh, the scientific questions, we also have regulatory questions about how to bring these trees into uh, the wild or how to start planting these trees. Um, and in the United States specifically, we have two agencies that uh, govern and the, or that oversees these. We have the FDA, we have the EPA, and we have the USDA. And although we have those agencies, let's say you got a deregulated, approved deregulated CRISPR tree that contains a trait that is needed for to fight a specific pest or pathogen, how would you go about um, planting these trees in the wild? And what are the factors that one should consider? And maybe I can start with Doria. Maybe you can start on this question. Sure. Um, right now, on a regulatory frame, it depends. So if it's a there, if it's a small modification, if it's a single gene substitution. Um, there, are, there, there are some stipulations about how small it is, so it's, it's not a complex gene-edited um, effort. Then, in fact, as Jack alluded to under the SECURE Act, it's essentially unregulated, um, which means that you um, or some company or some group can plant the, these individuals that have been gene-edited into forests or into um, other settings and as Jason said, we won't really know. Um, the only thing we will know is that they turn out to be individuals that are not susceptible to chestnut blight, hopefully. I mean, because that would be the reason they have been created. And so they are more likely to persist and develop and mature because we do have those root sprouts still out there, but they're not flowering very much. They're, um, they're not vigorous. They're not gonna reforest uh, the Eastern um, Appalachian, you know, this is massive part of the Eastern US. Um, the way the chestnut once had been. And, um, but we won't really know who, you know, we won't have a record of when they were introduced. We won't have a record of where they were introduced. Um, and so it, it will become a natural, naturally proceeding, what, what the scientific community calls an unconfined um, experiment. 
right? Because they will be put out there and the intent is that they will spread uh, naturally on their own. That's really different than when we introduce, for example, CRISPR crops in agriculture. Um, we, the, you know, the seeds have been purchased, they're harvested, they're not intended to spread beyond where they have been, where they're being cultivated. And as a result, they are perhaps easier to contain over time um, than, than, than an unconfined organism intended for self-distribution and dispersal. And as we know, you know, if it's a tree that produces nuts or seeds, we're going to have rodents of all kinds, animals of all kinds, birds of all kinds that are likely to distribute those seeds so that the organism will spread um, through the natural system. And that is the intent of restoration. But it also gives us less ability to understand if there are unintended consequences or to prevent them from moving into places where people don't want them. Um, and I think those kinds of issues need to be attended to um, when we have the intent of unconfined regeneration and distribution and, and um, restoration of species, as for some trees like, like the American chestnut. What about the importance of keeping the biodiversity of a particular tree species as we introduce these uh, different um, genetically modified organisms? Um, I see you nodding, Jay, so maybe you can take that on. Sure, I was just thinking, uh, so both Dory and I uh, served on a National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine uh, study committee on forest biotechnology and forest health. Um, and one of our findings was the importance of maintaining genetic diversity of an existing tree species, even if you use uh, gene editing or genetic engineering to introduce a trait. Um, so we, in our study committee, we, we talked about how you know, trees uh, encounter all sorts of different um, stresses in their lifetimes and over generations, um, not just in terms of being, uh, you know, grown in different climates, but also the climate is changing. And so the kind of reservoir of resilience that is represented in the genetic diversity of forest trees is, is an incredible resource. And we wouldn't want to, for example, genetically engineer one tree and then clone that single tree and expect it to uh, to do well in multiple environments over generations and generations. We actually want to hold on to the genetic diversity that exists in forest trees, even if we're intervening with a particular genetic insertion or gene edit that would help the, the, the tree species survive a particular challenge like a pest or a pathogen. And so one of the conclusions of our report is that even if we are going to use genetic engineering or biotechnology, that needs to pair with conventional breeding strategies that would ensure that the existing genetic diversity of a forest tree is maintained for the future health of that tree in the landscape. I, we are aware of any real world experience where genetic editing has caused harm to the environment or human health. Um, maybe Jack or Sophia. Um, no. So, um, except for perhaps one case where um, the Chinese scientists um, um, regarded all regulatory as well as moral um, values in the things, uh, that, that's the only case that I'm aware of where CRISPR has been used to potentially cause harm. But, of all the CRISPR applications to date, um, it has always been done in a safe and rigorous manner, um, um, encompassing the, the, the aspects of responsible research innovation, um, where really very little to no uh, um, um, ecological or um, human health harm has been, has been done, that is, as far as I'm aware. So, I'll let Sophia uh, um, elaborate on that. Yeah, I agree. There hasn't been no harm as far as we know. Um, and we have examples, especially in crops. And I, I would like to add one thing, listening to everybody, is that we have the use of these techniques in two scenarios. One is the case of crops and commercial trees, for which we have uh, already very good varieties or genotypes 
uh, that we know quite a lot about. We have lots of data of transcriptomes, genomes available. And so it can be much easier to use this technique and safer, I would say, because we know how these uh, genotypes or crops and trees and, and agriculture behave in different environments. So uh, there's tons of data. And we know that in the case of forest trees, which I'm uh, very more familiar here in Chile, we know that we can have a genotype A of eucalyptus and it behaves very well in a specific site. You take the same genotype and you put it in a different site, it will not perform as, as good. So there is, I would say, at least in our country, 50 years or more of data, how genotypes behave. So in that scenario, I would say that using GMOs or CRISPR would be easier. And in, in the Chilean re regulation, we're not allowed to have any GMOs in our country so far. Uh, but according to our Ministry of Agriculture for CRISPR-Cas, it will be case to case. And if you don't have uh, any foreign DNA within the new crop you're developing, it should be just as a conventional crop and doesn't need to go over risk assessment and biosafety. So it could be approved to be used in the country. A different case scenario would be when we're talking about chestnut or native species of which we have much less data. Uh, there are species that are not domesticated. So we're a little bit blind. There has not been much studies there. So of course, there you have many more unknowns or uncertainties. So in that case, uh, uh, you might require more risk assessment. In the case of potential crops, it might be easier because they take one year, two years, three years. And so you have the complete uh, rotation time or crop production. In the case of trees, most of them in, in Chile, if we go back to Chile, we have native trees that might take hundreds of years uh, that, to grow. And we know very, very little about them, about their physiology, about their development. So there are many unknowns, even of the unmodified or non-modified species, uh, trees. So um, I would say that we have to be careful when we look at regulatory issues. One scenario will be for those domesticated and commercial species, and the other scenario will be for undomesticated or little domesticated species, which we have to obviously, uh, we have to be aware that we know less about physiology and other issues that uh, environment aspects and others. Um, so I would make a difference there. And um, despite that, I would think that both technologies can be uh, very valuable especially under the climate change scenario we're under nowadays, we have more drought, we have more uh, and pest, pest, different pests or pathogens that travel with us. So before, I mean, maybe 50 years ago, a pathogen took 30, 40, 50 years to come from one country to the, to the other. Nowadays, they even come through car importations. We have detected some pathogens that are coming through the cars and you cannot do anything like about it. So maybe in that case, we could be open to use a GMO or CRISPR-Cas. But again, we need to know a little bit more about the species and also to find the right genes to be there, either be edited or the right thing to be introduced according to which technology you might want to uh, employ. So we keep getting this uh, question from our audience. I'm going to try to ask this in a, a bit different way. Uh, so Doria, could you explain a little bit um, what are the potential risks of using genetically engineered trees or CRISPR trees? And maybe thinking about what strategies could we use or we might be used to minimize the risk of using these GMO trees um, when we plant them in the wild? Sure, that's a complicated question because uh, the answer is not, oh, well, GMOs this, GE, gene edited um, organisms this. It's, it, it has to be, I think, as Jack said, sort of product by product. 
because there will be different implications of different genetic changes, no matter how you did the genetic changes. So we know, for example, in gene editing, while it is much safer, and I agree with Jack and Sophia on that, we know that, for example, there are records of off-target impacts in the DNA that we don't expect and we're not looking for because we're not looking for that trait change in at least 3% of the studies, but it varies by species. So in, in across many species, maybe 3% of the work generates an unintended change to the DNA, but in rice, 9% of the time you get an unintended change in the DNA when you're doing CRISPR. So, so it's, a, it's definitely not based on the process. It's based on the trait you're looking for and the species that you're working in and what you intend to do with that species. Are you going to plant it in a plantation? Are you going to put it um, out in the environment in order to disperse on its own? So there, so there, you know, the, my feeling, and I would tell you that I'm working with a group of, of non-governmental organizations in the U.S. that span environmental and conservation and food and consumer groups, and our feeling about how one should think about um, these, you know, the release of gene edited organisms into the environment is that not only is it case by case, but the risk assessment that would be required would also depend on this on the potential threat, right? The potential harm that could come from the changes that are being made. And that if that, you know, a very complex gene edited organism where the genome has been altered in many different places would require more scrutiny. Um, because the kinds of threats, which is what you asked me, that you might expect in nature from releasing an organism like this, it go from that organism becomes invasive, does so much better than we anticipated, and actually displaces other organisms. It doesn't produce, perhaps, the habitat or the environmental um, benefits that we expect as it moves across different locations under different conditions in the environment. Um, there are, as we learned about, as Jason re referenced in our National Academies panel, um, there are spiritual and cultural um, impacts that we need to be thinking about as well, not just biological and sort of biophysical impacts. Um, so there's such a range that it's hard to generalize. And once again, you know, the risk, whatever risk assessment is done should be should depend on the potential for harm and weighed against the benefits, you know? So the, the cost of, of replanting an American chestnut is not, uh, it, it really has to be weighed against no American chestnuts, which is sort of where we are now, very few American chestnuts, a completely altered system. Um, bringing it back, we have to think about what might it displace that has now done well in the absence of American chestnuts? Is that something that we think of as a risk? It, it really is a, has to be a very tailored approach. And I think the most important thing is that we need to know. So in the US right now, we don't know um, if it's, a, you know, if it's a, un, a deregulated change that gene editing has created under the SECURE Act. There's no record, there's no transparency, there's no registry. We will never know essentially um, what's out there and what kinds of effects it might be having. So really we need some transparency um, and we need to have a record of what's out there. And then we need risk assessment that's balanced both with the benefits, but also with the potential risk. Thank you so much, uh, Doria, for that explanation. And we covered the scientific issues that we have with these different biotechnologies and also regulatory issues and implementation, how are we going to bring this into the wild? But these are not the only issues we have here in the sense that we also may require the engagement of stakeholders like farmers, regulators, regulators, sorry, and other stakeholders that may have a more of a cultural connection to trees, uh, like Doria mentioned, which is the case with uh, Native Americans and the American chestnut. So the question would be more, how do we bring, why is this important? The, engagement of these different stakeholders and uh, uh, maybe how we can bring everybody to the table. And may, maybe Jason, this is a question uh, on your realm. Sure, uh, um, it's a big question. Uh, how do you bring everyone to the table? But I think I'll answer the first one first, which is 
you know, why is it important to engage these different stakeholders? Um, and I think, you know, it, it comes down to this. Um, when we talk about genetically engineering trees, whether they're in forest plantations or in, or in the, you know, more wild unmanaged forests, these are shared environments. Um, and so if we believe in um, the kind of uh, self-determination of different kinds of peoples around the world, um, that, that people should have some say about what happens to shared environments, um, then we wanna involve them in decisions about what happens in those environments. And that's a well-established uh, part of our environmental policy law in the United States. Um, you know, federal law requires the consultation of communities um, and stakeholders when there are federal actions that have implications for the environment. And certainly those laws don't work perfectly. Um, and there's all sorts of critique about the way that broader publics and stakeholders are engaged. But that, uh, that impetus to involve people in the governance of a shared environment is certainly a part of our political culture. And that would translate to something like um, you know, a novel tree, uh, whether it's through gene editing or genetic engineering, or possibly even through um, conventional breeding. The way that we do this, I mean, as Doria said, it's, um, you know, it's a bit case by case, right? Um, who needs to be in, engaged and involved in the kinds of decisions that we're making? Um, you know, for example, with the chestnut, you might think, well, let's consult with people um, to, who are in the range of the American chestnut, that maybe those are the people that matter the most and their perspective matters the most. Um, we might think about engaging indigenous groups who have sovereignty over their own lands. Um, and if those lands are adjacent or anywhere near where chestnut trees might grow, we might think about the importance of consulting with them um, and really figuring out how do we respect their sovereignty um, if some of those tribes, for example, don't want that tree growing on their land. That's a really thorny question, um, especially when we're talking about genetic engineering or gene editing in unmanaged environments. Um, you know, one perspective is rather extreme and it says, unless it's unanimous and everyone agrees, then you can't do it. Um, that's an extreme position. Another ex extreme position is if I can do it, it doesn't matter who doesn't want me to do it, I'm gonna do it anyway. Um, and I would say there's gotta be a middle ground that we find where we're trying to, to respectfully engage people um, and give them a chance to be heard, understand their perspective and think about are there ways that we can design the technology or monitor the technology um, or manage the technology in environments that respect the different kinds of preferences that exist across the human landscape. Maybe uh, we can talk a little bit of how, what kind of strategies we can have to bring anybody to the table. Uh, any thoughts, maybe Doria or Sophia? Well, I would say that um, I agree. Um, when you do biosafety, it depends, uh, bio risk assessment and the biosafety overall, assessment about the new crop to be developed or deployed uh, varies from country to country and uh, there are different criteria that are being used. So for example, in Canada, you have to go through this despite the, the technology you use to obtain the new variety. So either crossbreeding, GMO, CRISPR-Cas, they all go through the same uh, uh, assessments. Um, in the case of Chile, we only allow crossbreeding, so that's what we have, GMOs not, and CRISPR-Cas case by case. And, but when you take these decisions, you normally have people from uh, different stakeholders from different parts, and they all have to assign and what they think about this, what will be the economical cost, the social cost, environmental cost, uh, health, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, normally when you have a, a good biosafety bio committee, you have NGOs obviously also are on this table. You have most of the people. I like pretty much, maybe Jack knows a little bit better the case of New Zealand where they, people from indigenous people, uh, Maoris and others, they have quite a lot of saying in any decision they want to have. And I think that should be the case, and not only for GMOs but and gen, gen edited, but also for new crops and the use of new environments that, uh, as we have seen nowadays with pandemics, right, that 
we are more aware that we are part of the environment and not that the environment is around us or surrounding us. So I would say that uh, this will post pandemic or it will change things as who has a saying on uh, decision-making of uh, new crops to be used in, in different environments. Uh, it's in our country, we're going also through different political uh, writing a new constitution. And this has been an issue here that people want to have a saying of what they want to eat. Even going back to some people saying no, we will have to use the original seeds and not the... <laughs> or, so you kind of think, okay, we have to have a new culture. We have to uh, teach people that all the crops that we have have been domesticated. We have to have more agriculture and forestry, obviously, within the community. Uh, it's probably many people now are realizing what they're eating. It comes not only from the supermarket, but it comes from a farm and that whatever crop that is, it has been domesticated and it doesn't come from any seeds from small farmers and things like that. So uh, there's a huge thing that I would say that post pandemic, it's going to uh, be more important and relevant maybe maybe in developing countries. I, I, I don't know how it's going to change in developed countries. Europeans also have this vision that they really do not like GMOs and CRISPR-Cas and that's uh, so far it's a no-no. Um, and they're going pretty much for organic rather than even conventional crops. So it's going to be very difficult to put everybody and talk together and agree on something. I think that's the main vision as I guess we'll have to find uh, some middle point there, but also this needs to go with education and communicate science communication and, and a lot of science to the community. Uh, otherwise it's going to be very complex to have a agreement. Those are very, very important and interesting points. So how, what would you say to people who are still scared of GMOs or genetically modified organisms? Um, what would you say to uh, individuals, um, like how you can reassure people who are still afraid of gene editing? What would you say to them? And although I, I know this is an open question, maybe um, we can start with Jack and then if anybody else wants to add something, we can go around the table. Um, I will say, um, a bit of shameless self-advertising, take my class, take my course on biotechnology conservation society. <laughs> but no, I will say, uh, um, try to understand it. Try to really understand it beyond um, what is um, publicized or what is potential misleading in the uh, um, news and such, but try to read up on where it came from, how it actually works, and what are the products that are resulting from uh, CRISPR genome editing and how that differs from other technologies that are available today that are used to produce the that you eat or the uh, um, other uh, um, genetically modified organisms, including uh, uh, um, conventional breeding, if you think about how that has evolved from the earlier variants to the variants that we are planting in the fields today. So understand the genetic differences, understand how that is uh, um, 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 how that works essentially, and and then make your decision. So so go beyond just reading about what others opinions are. So that is, I guess, um, my feeling towards this issue. And I, I, I truly believe that when people understand uh, um, how these plants are made, then they will understand that, you know, it really is not different from a safety perspective, or it's much safer in many ways than plants and organisms or produce that are or we're already consuming. I mean, when we think about plants or vegetables like grapefruit, that was produced using um, um, radioactive mutagenesis. I mean, you put a radiation source next to the fruit, 
it randomly mutates the DNA, then came about the, the production of the grapefruit. Uh, um, that's a radiation-induced mutant. And yet it is completely deregulated. We've been eating it for decades and, and it is completely accepted by the public. But then how is a precise edit induced by um, CRISPR gene editing, how should that be uh, treated any different um, when it is, it, is, it is much more uh, um, accurate and safe and robust than the ones produced by random processes? So there are questions from a scientific, from a scientific point of view that I often ponder. So I think it is a, 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 a lot of science education and communication is Sophia mentioned that is still something that we as scientists perhaps need to focus on. Can I add something too? I think, um, I mean, I of course, of course would wanna encourage our audience to learn more about the technology and the, the mix of issues around forest health and the American chestnut case. And I think that helps us all make better decisions. But we also know as social scientists who study the public understanding of science um, that the way that people form their opinions about these kinds of issues is not by learning all of the facts and becoming experts themselves. I mean, frankly, you know, no one out there in our audience is going to become, you know, to go out today and have the time to learn the amount of science that Jack knows to come to their own conclusion about the safety of CRISPR. Like we're all, we're all relying on other experts who help us form our opinions. Um, and so I think, you know, it does help to have a kind of baseline knowledge about these technologies and to even interact with them if you have the opportunity. But the other thing I would add is that I think all of us should be a little bit skeptical about our trust in various voices that we listen to um, and that we need to think about who are we listening to? Um, what are, why do we trust certain voices and not others? Um, and so, you know, I've heard, um, I, you know, I've heard some biotechnologists say uh, gene editing is safe. There's never, never going to be an issue. We don't even need to test it. You know, it's, it's fine. Um, I worry about trusting someone who says that. I also worry about trusting an anti-GMO advocate who says GMOs can cause cancer and, you know, we're all being guinea pigs. And it's like, well, the, where's the evidence? There isn't evidence for that claim. Um, and so I think we want to bring some critical thinking into the way that we consume information about these technologies and issues. Um, and you know, th that doesn't mean that we have to become total experts and students ourselves of every aspect of this technology and how it works in the environment, but we need to be critical thinkers about the information that we do consume and the voices that we listen to that help us form our opinions. Sophia, Doria, anything that you would like to add? Or Jack, you, you unmute yourself. Oh, so I, I guess I have, a, I have a question. I love the, uh, and that's why I love discussions with Jason. He's always very insightful about this type of thing. So how should the audience or the general public uh, um, filter the misinformation about GMOs from ones that are, well, it's just limited to biologically or technically correct information? Um, since there seems to be a lot of uh, uh, misinformation uh, um, and that are progressively uh, getting worse that and so I, I often uh, fear those would sort of uh, um, mislead people into into otherwise incorrect um, uh, making great opinions based on uh, incorrect information that's the that's the million dollar question Jack um, and I think, you know, one way to put that question in context is even in terms of the pandemic and the science around COVID-19 and vaccinations and things like that. Um, and how do, we, how do we approach this, you know, environment of, of misinformation um, around, around, you know, around science um, and yet also understand that there are complexities here um, and uncertainties here that, um, you know, sometimes science and scientists are too declarative about what they know. Um, and when they don't express that uncertainty and then things change, that causes a lack of confidence among you know, public audiences. Um, and so you know, I think one of the things that we can do as experts is to communicate what we know, but also with a kind of humility about what we don't know 
um, and to trust actually that non-experts can deal with that uncertainty um, and that they will trust and respect you more, not when you are completely authoritative and are telling them what they should believe, but when you're sharing what you know um, with a certain amount of humility about what you don't know. Yeah, I would, I would just let, like to add a little bit more on that. Um, first of all, I would say that um, scientists, we are not very good communicators. So we need to have a bridge <laughs> with the community. And probably that's people like you guys that can help us translate our science into easy words for the people to understand. Because sometimes we think we are in a Congress and we try to speak very specific and about genes and things that everybody gets lost and nobody cares. And second of all, I think we need to be more emotional on the way we speak rather than too regional. Because when you see all this fake news and regarding pandemic, GMOs and everything, the people behind this, they always claim on emotions rather than rationale. So, uh, we need to move a little bit more onto a, an emotional speech, tell them about benefits, how this can help them, how this could um, have uh, uh, help not only people, but also the environment and other issues, but more in a uh, maybe humble way or not saying we know everything, but this is what we know and try to translate it easy and more emotional because people uh, react better to that kind of uh, talks rather than too much regional. So that's what I've seen here. And uh, I think we need to move forward in this and work with journalists and with other people uh, that can do this work better, better than we do it <laughs> anyways. So, and that's in that case. And also uh, we know that there's a lot of scientific data uh, regarding GMOs, that they are safe. There has been thousands of studies out there. And I always tell my students, everybody has one of this, right? Cell phones. And whenever they have cell phones, look for studies and nobody cares if cell phones can be harmful or not for little kids and everything. They just use them. And GMOs started together with cell phone technologies. So why are people uh, very keen to use cell phones and really don't think very much about what harms they can cause themselves or the environment? But when we're talking about GMOs or CRISPR-Cas or others, uh, they care quite a lot. And it's probably because they eat it and it's going to go inside their body. Despite you can tell them there are thousands of studies uh, regarding risk assessment, biosafety issues, and uh, none of them has shown any harm either to environment or to human health or animal health. So it's a very interesting way of how we can reach people, uh, the community in general. So I think that's a task we need to work on. We're loving this conversation, but we know that we are very much at the end. So Doria, can you bring us home? Maybe <laughs> as Tell us your thoughts on this topic and any last, um, last thoughts on the conversation. I, I really agree with so much has been said. Um, people, uh, you know, this is a complex topic like so many of these topics. And I think that the, the real maybe lesson is that a knee-jerk reaction, all is good, all is bad is really wrong for this particular technology because as I said, it's a, it's a product by product determination of what is safe and what is not safe. Some things are very safe for human health but have not had such a good impact on the environment. That's how we've managed those products. It's not the products themselves. So there's a, there's a bigger story that I think that people need to explore. It's a fascinating topic, you know, and it's an amazing technology and we need in these days every technology in the box uh, to help us navigate the environmental ills that we have created um, and the, uh, the health ills that we have created. So I wouldn't reject or accept outright. I would ask some targeted questions. 
And as we all gain experience with this technology, we'll get better at those questions. Um, so that would be my sort of take home is there isn't one answer here. And it's, the stories are great. The American chestnut story is great. You know, the, um, uh, how we've uh, changed some of our crops so we use fewer chemicals. That's, there are some great stories and, and, you know, we ought to be telling those stories and learning those stories and putting them into our encyclopedia so we can make, ask better questions when the next product comes along. Well, as I promised, this is a very complicated topic and we are only scratching the surface of uh, the different layers, but I want to thank everybody. Thank for the, the panelists for being here. And I would like to encourage everybody to watch our uh, Future Forest short, uh, short film series is great. And hopefully we can have more of these conversations, more of these films, and thank you. Thank you so much. Visit us at iBiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. Funding is provided by the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of General Medical Sciences.